0: The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. There we go. Sorry about that. Uh, Good morning once again. I I just want to say it's an honor uh, to be up here. Uh, I know it's a little bit different for some of you expecting Pastor Scott, but um, he had uh, a procedure done earlier this week. He's doing well, and um, Greg is also out of town this weekend, so it's just Ethan and I, which is really exciting because um, this is my... Third, fourth week as pastoral resident. And one of the opportunities that they've given me to be able to express my gifts and show them with all of you is to give me this opportunity to teach from God's Word in the context of corporate worship on Sunday mornings. And I have to be honest, um, I've been a member here at Abner Creek for almost four years. I've been attending for four years in August. I came here when I came to North Greenville. Uh, Ethan was the one who introduced me to the church. And when I started coming to Abner Creek, uh, the goal was that me and two of my friends, we were going to try out Abner Creek because that was the first church we heard about. Um, I'm from West Virginia, so I really, I didn't know of any other churches in the area. So I thought I'd come here. And then there were a couple other churches that people mentioned. And we'll just, we'll look around. We'll, we'll pray about it. We'll see where God wants us. So the first Sunday, classes hadn't even started yet. We'll come to Abner Creek and we experience worship on Sunday morning and we just never went to another church. Because we knew that this is where God wanted us. And then as my life went on, I had the pleasure of, of meeting Allie. And so Allie came alongside me, and we, she was able to join. And so we've been here together for two years now. And the thing about being in college is, like, you get used to a rhythm and everything in college, and then you kind of get ripped away for the summer. And it's kind of sad. Uh, Allie and I had the opportunity to go to West Virginia, where I'm from, but it was on a mission trip basis. So what we would do is we would go around for eight weeks out of the summer, and we would go to different churches. And it was like second or third week uh, last summer. And we were going to different churches, and they were healthy churches uh, for the most part. They were preaching God's word. But, man, I just remember turning and looking at Allie, and I'm like, I just miss Abner Creek. Uh, there's just something about, something about y'all, the, the way I feel so welcome here, um, the way we encourage one another. Uh, we build each other up. I'm encouraged by that, and and I'm thankful. My heart is very much here, and I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity to serve you uh, for the next year as a pastoral resident, but I want you to hear that because I want you to understand that that I consider this a great privilege to be able to deliver from God's word today, to be able to, to share with you what God has laid on my heart. So if you'll join me in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. Uh, the title of today's sermon is "Honesty Is the Best Policy." Uh, we're going to be looking at the ninth commandment, which is simple, but I believe that as we examine this verse today, you'll see that the implications of this verse extend far beyond what you might first think. So, Exodus twenty, chapter six, uh, Exodus chapter twenty, verse sixteen, says this: "You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor." So. Uh, about a month ago, we knew Scott was going to be out, and we were arranging people to fill in for him. And uh, he was like, why don't you preach on the Last commandment? I was like, yeah, that's great. You know, like I, I just graduated from North Greenville. Um, I'm, I'm fairly confident in my ability to handle the text. Um, you know, I, I've written papers on like 10, 12 verses, and I got one. You know, like don't lie. All right, man, all right, get 40 minutes out of that. But what I want you to understand is that while this is a short verse, there are four truths I want to point out to you that God reveals to us through this verse, okay? So you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The first truth that we see in this verse is that truth exists. Uh, In God's command to not bear false witness, that is to not lie, that must imply that there must be truth, right? Because you can't uh, sway, you can't change the truth, you can't go against the truth if truth doesn't exist in the first place. And so, what I mean by this is that this concept that truth exists goes completely in contrast to the idea of postmodernism. And postmodernism is basically the foundation of all modern uh, secular thought. And postmodernism says there is no absolute truth. Uh, This is where the basis of the argument that we can determine our own sexuality comes from, Uh, this is the basis for we can determine our own lives. We can put anything, we can really do anything that we put our minds to. Um, this postmodern thought is built on the absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. It's self-contradictory. It says that the, the one thing that must be true is that nothing is true. It, it, when given careful examination, it, it doesn't make much sense. But the Christian worldview says truth does exist and we build our lives upon this truth. And in the context that this verse is given... God gives these 10 commandments to Israel to help establish their government as a nation, as his people. And we see that the point in establishing this command was to establish the court system for the Israelites. So basically what it means is this, with other ancient civilizations, the way the court system would work would be completely different to the way that we might understand it, or at least I understand it from my many episodes of Law and Order that I've watched. It was simply... He, he, said, he said, she said, right? So like one person would come up and be like, hey, I saw John break into my house. He stole something. And the court would be like, all right, good enough for me. He's dead because most things were capital offenses at that time. You got killed for most of the things. There, there wasn't much other punishment. There wasn't really a jail system set up. And that's the way other nations operated. You could create a false allegation against someone. And if you had like just a small amount of proof or maybe a popular opinion on your side, then for the most part, you could get away with having someone you didn't like killed because you just came up with a claim, just one witness. But what God says is that he wants to ensure that the truth is found in his nation. He wants to make sure that the innocent are not given the wrong punishment because our God is just. Those who are guilty get the punishment. Those who are innocent get away free, which is interesting in the gospel because the innocent one took the guilt for us that we might be found innocent. So in that way, God keeps his character of being just. But in the courtroom, God said when an issue comes up before a judge, then he mentions in Deuteronomy 19, 15, God says that one witness is not enough to convict a man accused of a crime or offense that he may have committed a matter must be established by the testimony of two witnesses. So the first safeguard that would come up in order that God finds the truth to ensure that no one is bearing false witness in this time is that one witness wasn't enough. Two people had to be saying the same thing. Two separate people have to be giving the same claim in order to ensure that the truth is found. But that wasn't the only safeguard. In addition, since most crimes are punishable by death, such as stealing perhaps or murder most definitely, the accuser, the one who first brought the allegation to light, had to cast the first stone in the punishment. The capital punishment was to be stoned to death and to ensure that the accuser was telling the truth. Not only did there have to be two witnesses, but the one who brought the accusation in the first place had to cast the first stone. Because it's one thing to say that someone did something, but when you have the stone in your hand and you're about to throw it to initiate someone's death, if you're not telling the truth, you're gonna be given a lot of second thought. And not only that, but another safeguard that was put in place later by the Levitical law was that should the accuser be found to be giving false witness, then the punishment was turned on him. So if someone comes up with a false allegation, the one who is falsely accused can be killed because of this false allegation, but they find out that the accuser was lying in the first place, then the accuser will be killed because he didn't bear the truth. He didn't bring the truth to light. These are the safeguards that God put in place because truth exists and God wanted Israelites to find the truth in every situation. Now clearly we're not in the same context as Israel. Um, Our trials are established differently. Our courtrooms are structured differently. But the interesting thing about this command is the wording in it. Because when it says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, this is the first time that the word for neighbor doesn't simply mean the one living next to you. The word neighbor in this sense is from a Hebrew word that gives the connotation of anyone you come in contact with. You shall not bear false witness against anyone you come in contact with. Furthermore, in Hosea 4.2, Hosea, uh, the prophet Hosea is giving judgment against Israel. He's describing what they have done wrong. And he says that the Israelites have cursed the name of the Lord. They are lying, murdering, stealing, and in adultery. And he's referencing the Ten Commandments here. And when he says lying, he is using the Hebrew word for any type of lying whatsoever, more so than bearing false witness in the context of a, of a courtroom. He's saying any type of lying, more so than a judicial sense. And so God's desire for his people is to be a truth-telling people, not only with israel in the old testament but with his people now the church believers in the new testament with anyone that we come in contact with we are to avoid lying we are not to lie to anyone we come in contact with because the truth exists and when we tell the truth when we display the truth and when we show that the truth exists we're reflecting god's character as a truth telling god which brings me to my second truth that we see in this passage that God is the origin of all truth. So the first truth that comes from the second map is truth exists. Second, God is the origin of all truth. God tells his people to speak truthfully because he himself is true. I'm gonna run through some scripture passages pretty quickly, but I want you to see where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all true. About the Father, scripture says in Titus 1-2, God who never lies, in Psalm 15, one through three, David asks, who shall dwell on your holy hill? And he concludes that it's he who walks blameless and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. To dwell with God, you must speak truth in your heart. Romans 3, four, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And because God is truth, because the father is truth, he abhors anything which is false. He detests, he despises anything that is false. Psalm 5, six says, you destroy those who speak lies. Proverbs 6:16 6, through 19 says, there are 6 things that the Lord hates. One of those 6 things, a false witness who breathes out lies. Zechariah 8:17, the prophet Zechariah says, love no false oath, for these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the Son is described as true. John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah 53, nine, there was no deceit found in his mouth. This is Isaiah prophesying about Jesus who would come. There was no deceit found in his mouth. John 14, six, Jesus describes himself as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 18, 37, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then the spirit First John 4, 6 describes the spirit as the spirit of truth. And so what happens as God's people when we lie? You see, what we're doing in that moment, though we might not realize it, though we might justify it as a little white lie, is because people look to us and they see how God is from our character and God tells us to reflect him in how we act. In fact, when he gave the command to Israel, it was to reflect his name that they might stand out among the nations. And now as God's people, we stand out among the nations and being saved and drawn to himself. When we lie, our actions say that God says one thing and does something else, which certainly isn't true. Now, l- let me give you an example of this, and this is gonna be a silly example, but bear with me. What I'm about to tell you is a true story, and I pray that you don't think of me differently for it. Um, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was about April of this year, I believe, um, and one of the ways that God is growing me is helping me tell the truth to Allie. And so the story goes that um, cafeteria food at the school certainly is not home cooked food. Um, I'm very thankful that God provides food while we're in college. But they're just, some days it's not very good. However, it is a buffet, it is all you can eat. And so, you know, you you have to-go boxes and you can put food in there and take it back with you and you just got snacks for later. It's great, you don't have to pay for it, right? Well, Allie was invited to a girls' night and the one requirement was that she needed to bring a snack. And so Allie and I are... Are, are literally like climbing under couches to pull pennies back to make sure we can get married in December because we're college kids and that's just the way life is right now. And so one of the ways that we would cut back is we decided let's save the $3 that we would normally use to get cookies from Walmart and let's just fill up one of the takeout trays from the calf with cookies, all right? And, like, if you hit the cookies at the right time, they're really good. But otherwise, they're, they're great. Like, you could skip it across a pond if you threw it, right? It would just skip right across. They're hard cookies. So we fill up the tray, and she, she takes it to the girls' night. I, I walk her on up to where she was going. She takes the tray. All right, love you. and Enjoy enjoy your night. I walk on back. A few hours later, I come back, and I walk her back to her dorm. And we tell each other goodnight. But she still had the cookies. <laughs> she walked in with, like, 12 cookies and walked back out with 12 cookies. Nobody ate them, and so we needed to do something with them. And Allie hates more than anything to waste food, which is which is understandable. So she says, "All right, if you will just do me one favor." And I was like, "Yeah, of course. What is it?" She's like, "If you would just take these cookies and put them in the common room of your dorm, so that way when people are walking out, they can just have a cookie, and it'd be a really good way to make their day." And she made it sound really sweet, and I don't remember what she said after that, but. I was like, oh yeah, sure. I would love to do that. I'll just take them right on up to the commentary. She's like, thank you so much. And I looked at those cookies and I said, if no one got them from the calf, if no one got them from the Bible study, there definitely isn't anyone getting them from my dorm. Because if you can't even get rid of them when they're, sometimes when they're fresh, you're definitely not getting rid of them six hours later. So I took the cookies. I said, good night, Allie. She walked away. I heard the door shut and I started towards my dorm. And when I heard the door shut, I just did a 180 and went straight for the dumpster and threw them away. And I didn't think, I just kind of wiped my hands and walked away, I didn't think anything of it. The cookies are gone, she's happy, I'm happy. Two days later, I don't know if this was God, it was God, but we're, we're at dinner and seriously, out of the blue, our conversation wasn't even about this. She goes, hey, did, did the boys enjoy those cookies that you brought to them? And I just couldn't hide my face. I just looked down, and I was like, oh man, she goes, you didn't throw them away, did you? No, ma'am, I didn't, I'm sorry. Uh, to this day, she still doesn't trust me with cookies. But the point being, while that was a silly example of, of me going against my word, and, and it's just you know really trivial points, in that moment, when I lied to Allie, I said one thing and did something completely different in my actions. And in that moment, the example I gave of God was that he does the same thing. That's simply not true. All truth comes from God. God is true. God always keeps his word. He's always faithful and always honest. In fact, he tells the Israelites in Leviticus 19, 12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. The reason why they weren't to swear falsely is because he is God. You will not profane his name. You will represent it correctly. And if God is true, if God is the father of truth, then scripture also reveals that the opposite is true. And what that means is that Satan is the father of lies. So if God is the father of truth, Satan is the father of lies. When Jesus confronts the Pharisees in John chapter eight, he not only tells them that they aren't representing the father, but he takes it one step farther and says that he's representing their own father. Listen to what he says. This is verses 42 through 44 of John eight. If God, he says this to, Jesus says this to the Pharisees. If God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. You are of your father, the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Listen to the weight of those words. It's not, in that moment to the Pharisees, Jesus doesn't say, you're not representing God. He says, you're representing his adversary, Satan. You're representing a liar because you lie. And when the Pharisees live lives of hypocrisy, Jesus said that they live lives representing the devil. We see also that the devil is the father of lies in Genesis three. Because the whole reason that the fall happened was because the serpent came. And the big problem that he had, the wrong thing that he did towards Eve was he lied. In the very beginning, he lied. He said that God wasn't really true. Think about how interesting this is. He says that God really isn't true in what he was saying. Because he said to Eve, oh, you won't really die when you eat the fruit. God just knows that you're gonna become like him. Think about the weight of that lie. Satan launched an attack on God's character. And God certainly must be true. Satan's lie was that like God was withholding the truth from Eve. But God was telling the truth all along. Because truth exists and all truth comes from God. Which brings me to the third truth that we see in this passage. We are all guilty of not telling the truth. So because truth exists, because all truth comes from God... And because we are sinners, we are all guilty of not telling the truth. I wanna explain that there are three arenas that I've recognized in my life where I'm guilty of lying. And then I wanna share with you the consequences for those lies, okay? So let me share with you the three arenas. The three arenas of our lives are vertical, and that's between us and God. We're guilty of lying between us and God. Horizontally, with others, we're guilty of lying to others. And internally, we're guilty of lying to ourselves. So examples of lying in the vertical arena between God and us, the most prominent example of lying is false doctrine, and so that is not accurately reflecting the character and the work of God. Any, th- this is why there's such an emphasis here at Amner Creek on uh, filtering the songs that we sing, in who stands behind the Word of God and delivers a message why we're so careful, why I, even this week, felt the weight of what I was planning to share with you. Because I do not want to lie about God's character. I do not want to misrepresent him. I do not want to lie in this arena. We do not want to sing songs that do not say things that are completely true about God or that misrepresent his name. That's why we're so focused on representing God correctly. But even to a greater extreme, Whenever there are those teachers who come up and say, for example, that hell doesn't exist, they are lying about God. Because that is not the truth we see in God's word that hell does exist and it is a punishment. And when we tell others, if if teachers tell others that there's no punishment for our sins, that hell doesn't exist, you don't have to worry about sinning in the face of a holy God then we are lying in the face of God who, as I described earlier, despises. He detests lies. He hates those who breathe falsehood. We are going against his truthful nature. And it's easy to think that we're comforting others, but instead we're lying in their faces as well because danger is coming for them and we aren't standing up to tell them of the truth. Which brings me to my next Uh, arena of our life. Horizontally, among others, uh, we lie to each other. In preparing, I I went on to thesaurus.com because I don't own a thesaurus, which might say something of my generation right now, Um, because you can just type into a website. And so I looked up, I just typed in lie because I wanted to see synonyms for it. And what I realized is all the synonyms are types of lying. So let me share a few of this list and, and think about how these all relate to lying. To lie is to distort, to evade, To fabricate, to create a forgery, any purposeful inaccuracy, a known misrepresentation, slander, perjury, falsification, any hyperbole told in pride. I want to take a moment and clarify the hyperbole issue because Jesus used hyperbole a lot in his teaching. Um, In thesaurus.com, it simply had hyperbole. I added in pride for this very reason. Because whenever we tell a hyperbole, that is, whenever we exaggerate a story in pride, we're doing it to make ourselves look better. We're doing it to justify ourselves so that we can impress others. We're lying to others so that they might think better of us. Jesus told hyperbole to get points across to the Pharisees. If the Pharisees could get it on a greater scale, if the people around him could understand a concept on the greater scale, then he could surely explain it on a more narrow scale. It was a literary technique. But hyperboles and pride, are told to make ourselves look better. Now, we might lie to impress others about what we've accomplished or what we've done and they might be impressed with us. Uh, think about this type of lying, flattery. Telling a compliment with the intent of receiving something from another person. Just empty, uh, empty encouragement like I'm guilty of this, like you don't even mean what you're saying, you're just putting it out there to make the person feel better and then you can pat yourself on the shoulder and be like, yeah, I made him feel better, that's good. Instead of honest encouragement, we're guilty of flattery, like we're guilty of all these things, we've distorted the truth, we've evaded the truth at times. Um, we may, have not, may not have created a forgery as far as maybe money because that might be where our minds first goes to create a forgery as far as bills, but we've maybe created a, a forged image of ourselves. We've shared purposeful inaccuracies. We've told hyperboles and pride. We may have slandered others. We may have knowingly misrepresented others. And and speaking of knowing misrepresentation, what about gossip? Idle talk or rumor in the personal or private affairs of others? It's lying. And gossip doesn't just merely involve sharing gossip, but also is listening to gossip. Those who listen to gossip and do nothing to stop it are just as guilty because to do no action is to do some action. We're all guilty of lying. We we fall into these categories. We've lied about the character of God, we've misrepresented God, we've lied to one another, and then internally. And there are two extremes that we've lied internally to ourselves we try to convince ourselves that the sins we commit aren't so bad or we try to justify our actions by lying and comparing ourselves to someone else. Because here's, here's what happens. When it comes to the other, if we take the 10 commandments at surface surface issues and we never dig deeper. So if we take uh, murder at face value as just simply killing another and we don't take Jesus' teachings into hating someone in our heart as murdering, then we could pretty much get off the hook with most of the 10 commandments at a very surface level, okay? Because you could argue, okay, I don't have false idols in my home, Check. Uh, I took a day off from work this week, check. Everyone in my household is still alive by the grace of God, all right, check. Uh, I haven't stolen anything that I'm aware of this week, check. But when it comes to lying, suddenly it's a whole, di- whole different ballgame because you're not getting out of that one. Because if you say, oh, I haven't lied, you just lied. Like, that's it, you're in. So what we do is we lie to ourselves and we say, all right, if this one, you know, God doesn't count this one against me. What he does is he counts how many lies I had this week, Right? And we switch, we switch it. Instead of comparing where we stand to God's holiness and what he's revealed to himself in his scripture, we compare ourselves to someone else. And we try to bring their righteousness before God to make ourselves look better. And we say, I've lied this week, but God, you know, I haven't, I haven't lied as much as him on down the street. Have you seen how much he lied? Like, he's literally a con artist. Like, he's a used car salesman or whatever you might want to argue. We we use others to try to make ourselves look better and we try to build ourselves up. Or there's the other extreme and perhaps this is the one I'm the most guilty of. We fail to believe our identity and who we are as God's people. We lie to ourselves in believing that we aren't as loved as we truly are and that we aren't righteous because of Christ. We fail to believe it. We might think that we're too awful for God to save us We might think that we've done too many things since the moment in time where we've gotten saved as if Jesus didn't die for all of your sins. And then that cycle of believing that we're not good enough to be saved, it leads us back into the cycle of comparing ourselves to others to try and make ourselves look better and feel better as if Jesus could save us more. Or we get into this cycle of making a forged image of ourselves for others, of lying about who we are, so that we can earn God's approval and favor. But God's favor and approval has already been won for us in Jesus. And these lies, vertically, horizontally, internally, with God, others, and to ourselves, have consequences. God views lies now with the same importance that he viewed them in the Old Testament. While God has revealed his grace so clearly in what Christ has done for us, the punishment for lies is still severe. But we, we, again, we make light because the other commandments at a surface value we can kind of get out of, but when it comes to lying, we just change it to, I haven't lied as many times. But think about the, the severity with which God views lying in the New Testament. In Acts chapter five, verses one through 11, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This is an interesting story because in the midst of the church growing and flourishing and being healthy in the midst of persecution, we see this story about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And so Luke, as he writes Acts, puts a verse in at the end of chapter four and he describes Joseph. And it describes Joseph and he says that Joseph, who's also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Joseph sells his field. He brings the money and says, I want this to be for the work of the church. And then immediately we look at chapter five. But, so in contrast to what just happened with Joseph, the the word but is like, all right, look what happens here. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, same situation so far. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So as opposed to Joseph who brought all the money, we see that Ananias and Sapphira schemed to lie and keep some of the money back. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself some of the proceeds of the land. And Ananias drops dead right in front of Peter. And then it's told in scripture that when Ananias heard the words of Peter, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it, which I think would be natural for a healthy man to come in, lie, drop dead, and then be carried out. It would be okay to be a little afraid. So the young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. And no sooner did they finish burying him that Sapphira came in. And so about an interval of three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So Ananias just flat out lied. Like he put forth a a false image of himself and said, yeah, I'm giving all I've got, even though he kept some for himself. And Peter accused him of it correctly, confronted him with that lie and God's judgment came in taking his life. And the people carried him out and buried him. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in and this time she gets a chance to own up to the truth, which keep that in mind. She gets a chance to own up to the truth. And Peter said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. She lied. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside the husband. Kind of sounds absurd at first. The church is growing. Everything's going well. They're living in community together. And these people lie and drop dead. And no sooner does the husband drop dead that the guys came back in and found her drop dead, which I'm thinking they're wondering what Peter's doing on that day. But they they take her out and bury her beside her husband and fear came upon the whole church and all who heard those things. God made his judgment known immediately in that moment. It's an example of, of the judgment which will come in the future on a much greater scale to all liars. Revelation 21, eight says this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes that those who are swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God, God, along with another list, structured in a similar fashion. And what we want to do in these situations is to try to get out of being guilty of lying Is we want to separate our actions from what we've done. So we, we want to say, let me use myself as an example. My name is Matt, and I happen to lie. But Scripture says, no, that's not the case. You don't just happen to lie. One of my favorite pastors, Matt Chandler, says uh, that we cannot separate our actions from who we are. So we don't happen to lie. We lie because we're liars. Period, end of story. You cannot separate the actions that you do from who you are. It's in your nature. So when the liars are thrown into the lake of fire, it's those who are guilty of lying because it's in their character. But God has made a way, which is the fourth truth we see in this passage, that the truth has set us free. We are all guilty because truth exists and truth is from a holy God and we are all guilty of lying, but Jesus, the truth has set us free. We were condemned and held captive to our punishment, which is hell separated from God. Yet Christ came and set us free. John eight thirty one and 32, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So if we build on this imagery I used at the beginning of a courtroom, imagine our standing before God, that God as the holy and perfect judge who knows all things, keep in mind, you cannot hide your lives from God. God knows all of them. You stand before him and God declares you guilty because he seeks the truth in his courtroom. He longs to make sure that justice is served. He says, you are guilty, you are a liar. Here's your punishment, to be cast into the lake of sulfur at the final judgment. But one speaks up on your behalf, Jesus, and says, let his punishment be on me. Jesus died for the liars. Jesus died that we might not go to the lake of fire and sulfur. Christ lived a perfect life. He came and died in our place being the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he rose again showing that he is who he says he is and that God has counted Christ's payment in full on our behalf. There is no wrath left for those who belong to him. And Paul could have ended the argument that the swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God right there at that point, because it's true. The liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he says in the very next verse, this is 1 Corinthians six eleven, and such were some of you. You were liars. You were guilty of lying and profaning the name of the holy God, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of God. And here's what the beauty of God being the, the source of all truth, of him being just means. When we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, when we trust in him for salvation, just as God cannot lie about our punishment, he cannot lie about the fact that we are liars, God cannot lie about our status before him because of Christ, Paul words it this way in Romans 8. The the general idea of the argument is that if God is high and lifted up, if no one is higher than him, and if we are in right relationship with him, Romans 8, one says that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And Paul builds the case out and says, if that's the case, if there's no condemnation, if we belong to him, and if God is powerful and above all other, above all creation, and God says that there is no condemnation for those who belong to him, who can argue? If God is our Abba Father, which means that he is near and we are in right relationship, he also has authority to declare us right. And he does not lie. If he declares us right before him through Jesus, then we are right. If God says there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, then there truly is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. And no one can bring that condemnation because the truth will set us free. So how do we how do we make this apply to our daily lives? Uh, How do we find steps to put these truths in place that truth exists, that God is the origin of truth, yet we've all lied, but Christ made a way and the truth has set us free. There, There are three ways I wanna highlight for you quickly. First, first point of application, we recognize the lies within us and turn to the truth. That's big T truth, God. The only way we will be set free from our lies and from our lying The only way we will be set free from putting a false image, a forged image of ourselves out before others is to recognize that we belong to the truth, to God. You see, Christ's death gave us Jesus' righteousness. So before God, we are seen as righteous and perfect because Christ was perfect and his sacrifice is counted in our account. And what that means is to repent and believe we must recognize that we aren't perfect. We must recognize that we've sinned against the Holy God and give our lives over to him. And if we recognize that it is not our righteousness that we have, but Christ's righteousness, that frees us to be honest about the fact that we struggle. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together because we didn't have to have it all together. Christ was perfect. That we might work through in the work of sanctification to be made more like him. And when we recognize that Christ's righteousness frees us to be honest about who we are, it sets us free from lying and putting a false image of ourselves forward. Second, as a body, we are to represent the truth. When we come together as a body of Christ, when we gather together for corporate worship or throughout the week in life groups, on Wednesday nights, wherever that might be, we represent the truth. Al Mohler said this about the church. It is the mark of a Christian to be truthful for Christianity is established in God's truth. God's people formed into local congregations are like islands in the midst of an ocean of lies. I love that imagery. We are like islands of truth in the midst of an ocean of lies. God's people are to be communities of truth, the people of truth. We worship in spirit and truth. When we come together, we seek to accurately describe God in how we worship through our song, through giving, through the preaching of his word, through communion, through baptism. We seek to display the truth of God so that in the midst of an ocean of lies, the world can see an island of truth about what God says and in who he is. Finally, my final point of application, we avoid gossip gossip. In any speech which does not build people up. In Ephesians 4.31, Paul wrote, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from among you, along with all malice. We don't merely stop lying because whenever we stop an action, it must be replaced with something else. So we stop lying and start encouraging. If we are to display the truth, we must encourage one another in the truth. If we're to be an island of truth in the midst of an ocean of lies, then we need to encourage one another in the truth. We need to be a body marked by the truth. For so that's the way that God's intended it. So as Ethan comes up to play for us, let me close by inviting you to respond. What, what I understand about preaching at my young age is that I have a duty and a responsibility to deliver God's word to you. But the sermon is not complete when we sing and leave. Half of the sermon is responding. And that doesn't always mean coming to the altar, but it means obeying. And I wanna give you an opportunity to reflect on the truth that I've shared with you to wrestle with it in many ways and to ask God where it is that you need to change and where you need to adjust how you're living and how you're displaying yourself falsely. There are there are many opportunities that we have to respond here. And I know that you're probably thinking it's a little bit different because Greg and Scott aren't here, but we're gonna be flexible and we're gonna work this out. So, let me say this one, one more thing before um I, and many times i'm guilty of displaying a, a lie about myself I and mean, it's not like a big way like i'm faking who i am but um one of the ways i was guilty especially when i was younger and going through church at home is i would just say that everything was fine on the inside i was crying out for help I would show that I wasn't struggling on the outside, but the inside, God was convicting me and I just wasn't willing to give it up. And so if you're feeling that way this morning, I wanna give you an opportunity to respond. And there are, there are many ways that we can do this. One of the ways is um, we, we make these stairs available as an altar to kneel before the Lord. And there's nothing special. Um, God doesn't hear your prayer, especially more if you're on your knees. But that attitude That posture of prayer, of kneeling before the Lord and showing that He is in control and that you're giving that up to Him, can make the difference for some people. Another way that we have available to respond is if you need prayer, we have people in a prayer room at these doors to the side. And these people want to pray with you through whatever may be going on because sometimes we don't have the words to say. The scripture reveals that the spirit prays for us, but sometimes it can help to have someone else just pray with us. To know that someone else is appealing to God on our behalf. And finally, um, I'll be upfront. If there's something that you need to talk to me about, I'd love to help you. I would love to point you to people who can help. Um, I understand that I'm not Pastor Scott, but you can trust me. Um, I would love to pray with you should you deem it fit to join the church today, I would love to get you to the people who can help you do that. If you need to step forward in salvation, if you are apart from Christ, you are still a liar. If you've not repented and believed in Christ and trusted in him for salvation, that identity is still true of you, but it doesn't have to be. I would love today for you to repent of your sin of your lying to believe that christ has made a way for you to spend an eternity with god and to give your life over to him and i would love to help you with that if you need baptized and you want to take that as your next step confirming and showing to others that you've taken the step of salvation i would love to help you there too as ethan plays we come to respond i, I would just invite you to obey the lord whatever manner you see fit let me pray for us and then we'll respond Lord, I thank you for this day and I thank you that you are true. Thank you for for being truthful to us and revealing what the punishment for our sins is and for the fact that we are redefined by Christ and that you cannot lie that we belong to you. God, I pray today that if anyone is struggling with lying about maybe who they are or, or whatever other arena that they may be struggling, flattery or gossip or whatever it might be, God, that they would come before you and they would confess their sins and understand that you are honest when you say that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. God, would you not let us walk out of this place? Still holding to the conviction of the Spirit and not confessing their sins. If anyone here does not know you, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would see how gracious you are, and that they would give their life over to you, repenting of their sin and believing that Christ has made a way and paid for their sins. Lord, we love you. Help us to respond faithfully. It's in your name, I pray. Amen.
1: verse again. I